Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. We are 24 verses away from finishing Malachi already. Amazing. I don't know what that means, but... Well, last week, uh, if you were here, we, we, uh, we looked at um, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, focused our attention on that, and, and mainly talked about what is God's relationship with evil, because in that verse, the Israelites accuse God by asking Him, where is the God of justice? We see so many injustices taking a place around us, and ultimately what they mean is to us. And you say that you are a just God, and therefore we don't see that. So you must be gone, absent, or you must delight in evil, or in those who do evil. So this week we get to chapter 3, where the Lord responds to their question, where is the God of justice? So we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. And if you would stand, I'm going to read, and you can just follow along. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years." Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust, the, who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore... You, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let's pray. Father, again, we are so grateful for your word. And that we can look to it and have understanding. We can be taught by you, God. That you have spoken to us and you have entrusted it to us. We thank you, God. We thank you. And so I ask you again that you would open our eyes Open our hearts that we could behold wonderful things from your law. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. He begins chapter 3 and he says, Behold, he's responding to their question, and he says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Anytime a king was to go to a city, that king would send before him a messenger, his 
messenger. And the, the, the job of the messenger was to go and prepare the way for the king's arrival. He would make a clear path. He would remove obstacles. And ultimately, he would act as a herald, announcing the coming of the king. And that's what the Lord is referring to here. I'm going to prepare the way by sending my messenger ahead of me. Isaiah refers to this same messenger in Isaiah 40, verse 3. He says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And we are given uh, who this is clearly in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, or starting with verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. If you go to Mark chapter 1, it also refers to this messenger. At the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 1, it begins saying, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. In the next two words, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you may notice the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. That looks like The beginning of what it says is from Malachi. It is from Malachi. Um, Some manuscripts actually say there, as it is written in the prophets, um, and actually what happens here is both passages are quoted. So behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way? That is exactly what we're looking at today in in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And then the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, is what we also referenced in Isaiah 40. Jesus makes it completely completely clear in Luke chapter 7, if you flip over, when he's talking to his disciples. And beginning in verse 24, it says, when John the Baptist, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed? Shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. John the Baptist is who is spoken of in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord is saying, I'm going to send my messenger, John, to go and make ready for the coming of me. I'm sending my messenger to herald my coming, to prepare the path. And we know from the ministry of John that there was much repentance that took place under his ministry and people who were being baptized by him, repenting of their sins. And that was his message. Repent, repent, repent. 
goes on in Malachi. He says, I'm going to send my messenger, John, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Who is this? Notice the words that he uses here, okay? Lord is a good indication of who he's talking about. The Lord is coming. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. The Lord will come to his temple. The Lord is Jesus. So John, it's saying, is going to prepare. My messenger is going to go and prepare the way. He's going to come. He's going to prepare the way. And the Lord, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come. The one whom you delight in. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, we'll get to this in a minute, but um, that word suddenly doesn't necessarily mean um, quickly, but unexpectedly. And so what he's saying is, Jesus, the Lord, will come. The one that I'm promising, the one that's been promised throughout the ages will come after the messenger comes and prepares the way for him. He will come to you even when you least expect it. John the Baptist will prepare the way and Jesus will come. This is Jesus is talking about and it's one of the clearest Old Testament references to Jesus being God, Yahweh. In fact, if we look through this, notice what it says. Behold, I, Yahweh, send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, Yahweh. He's preparing the way before me. I'm the one that's coming. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The one who is coming is also the one who is being sent. I will send my messenger and prepare the way for me, and the Lord, me, will come. God is both the sender and the one being sent. Jesus is the Son of God and fully God. And we see it even in the Old Testament being taught here. Jesus, when he was with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, he said to them, before Abraham was, I am. Affirming the teaching in the Old Testament that Yahweh was coming in the flesh. God was coming in the flesh. Because he didn't say to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I was also. Or I was already there. He purposefully chose the words that God used when answering Moses, saying, whom shall I tell the people sent me? He said, tell them I am sent you. I am who I am sent you. And Jesus, echoing that to the Pharisees, says, before Abraham was, I am. Affirming he was God. Obviously, we could go into John 8 and see that the Pharisees took offense to that. But God is both sender and the one who sent. He continues and he says, The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. Now, who is this messenger? Is it the same messenger that we see at the first part of verse 1? Behold, I send my messenger. Now we see again, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. This is a different messenger. Jesus is coming as a messenger and as a confirmation of God's covenant. The covenant is referred to 
is God's covenant with his people. John the Baptist is not the one who is the messenger of the covenant. Jesus himself is the messenger and the confirmation of God's covenant with his people. He confirms it and he seals it ultimately by his own blood. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. When it says the messenger in whom you delight, we don't want to be confused here. He's not saying that the Israelites, the people, genuinely are delighting in Christ. They are delighting in Him to the extent that they think the Messiah is going to come. And when the Messiah comes, they will be blessed immeasurably. Their thinking is the Messiah is going to come. He's going to take out our enemies. And yea, for us, we delight in that thought. We delight in his coming. But what they'd forgotten and what we've seen through the first part of Malachi is they think their enemies are God's enemies. When in reality, we found out so far in the book of Malachi, they are God's enemies. And so though they delight in the one that they think is coming, it will not be delightful for them. It will not be pleasant for them when he comes. And you can get the sense of that in the way the Lord is speaking. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And he continues with that thought. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? If they had ears to hear, this would certainly have taken the air out of the Israelites, the delight out of what they were thinking. This is to give them a wake-up call from their delighting. And I just want to mention, there are two scenarios, there's, there's um, two times that are referred to in this passage. Okay, And so as we get into this more and more and more, there are two scenarios that are taking place, two times that are being referred to. And from here on, well, the whole thing, one through five, refers to di- two different times. And if you have read um, prophetic passages about the coming of Christ, sometimes they're not completely clear. And what I mean by that is if you look in the New Testament and the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see the Pharisees who, even though they knew the Scriptures, and the disciples who, though they knew the Scriptures, the whole time that Jesus is there, both of them, some against Jesus, those even following Jesus, are thinking Jesus is coming once. And He's going to set up His kingdom. As they're going into Jerusalem, riding into Jerusalem, the thinking of the people is he's going to annihilate, take out the leaders, the Roman leaders, and he's going to set up his kingdom. We get to reign with him forever and ever and ever and ever. They didn't understand from the Old Testament that he was coming twice. That there was a coming where he would live a perfect life and be the perfect lamb and lay down his life as the perfect lamb, be killed for the sins of of those who would believe in Him, and then He would rise again, conquering sin, conquering death, go back to His Father, and sometime in the future, come again as judge, and to set up His kingdom. They didn't understand that. 
We have both of those things going on in this passage of chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. 5, verse 5, is clearly second coming judgment of Christ. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, kind of weaves in and out. Some see verses 3 and 4 as absolutely future. And it's speaking of the millennial kingdom. And this is something that's to come in the millennial kingdom. Others would see verses 3 and 4 and say, no, this is immediately after Malachi where Ezra and Nehemiah come on the scene. And there's a purification that takes place in the priesthood and that prepares the way for the coming of Christ. So let's see what we can know from these verses. What does the Lord tell us about himself and his coming? Both first coming and second coming. That we can know from these passages. First of all, his coming will be severe. His coming will be severe. Look at what he says. But who? He's coming. He's coming. The Messiah is coming. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears this isn't language by the way of delight this is more like fearful language and the answer the assumed answer is no one unless the lord is merciful to them that's the truth of us we could not stand before God, except for His mercy. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. No one in that state can stand before God. So what happened? What could possibly happen that would put us in a state that we could endure and stand before God? God happened. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace You have been saved. Who can endure? Who can stand? No one but by the grace and mercy of God. It says he will come. He will come as a fire. The Lord is coming as a fire. There's two kinds of fires. Two kinds of fire in the way that he's coming. But he's coming as fire, it says. And there are two fires to his coming. Both are fire, though. Okay, as we get into this, both of his comings are fire. And fire hurts, right? Fire is painful. Fire is not something we play with. Last night, we we did a campfire in the backyard and roasted marshmallows. And and, and we weren't like telling the kids, hey, run as fast as you can up to the fire and, and see how fast you can get there to roast. We're like, be careful. And as the wind's picking up and blowing it into their faces, 
we encourage them, you should back away from the fire because fire is painful. It hurts. We know that from a very young age. Fire hurts. And what it tells us is his coming is like fire. Fire is painful. But here's the thing. You want one of the fires and you should absolutely fear the other fire of his coming. So what are these fires that it refers to? The first is the fire of refining. Verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. He will come, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of of silver. Now, what is a refiner and purifier of silver? You've probably heard of, 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 of how this works and even heard analogies like this. But when a silversmith was going to refine silver, he would heat up the fires very hot and very large. And his job then was to sit over the fire watching the silver as the impurities are burned out of it. That's how purification happens in silver. That's how it happens in gold. And so the process was this hot and burning process where the impurities would, as it get hotter and hotter and hotter, the impurities rise to the top and the dross, that's the impurities, would be scraped off of the top of the silver or off of the top of the gold. And this process continues and continues and continues as more and more of the impurities come to the top. And the silversmith or the goldsmith continues to just scrape it off of the top until it is pure. And they know that it is pure when they can see their reflection in the silver or in the gold. That's what Scripture tells us, that Jesus is coming. That's one of the ways that Jesus is coming to the earth. As a refining fire. The fire works at revealing and removing the impurities in what is being refined. That's what Jesus comes to do, to refine those who are His. And that refining of Jesus in our lives is, is no less painless or no less painful than, than the refining that takes place. It's fire, Scripture teaches us. The fires of suffering and discipline and affliction and self-denial are hard and sometimes very, very painful. But God, God uses those things to bring those impurities out of us, to scrape them off of us and make us more and more and more and more and more like Christ. But it's fire and it's painful. Matthew 5, 8 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who will see God? Those who are pure in heart. And that's what we want. That's what we want. We want to see God. That's what we desire. We want to see God. And what Jesus says is, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. So we want that. And the only way to see Him is to be made pure. And purity comes through refining. And refining comes through fire. And that's what God says Jesus is coming as. He's coming as a refiner's fire. First Peter 1 verses 6 and 7. 
Peter talking about this very thing. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this, he says, in what? In the gospel. He's just boasted in the gospel in verses 3, 4, and 5. In this, the gospel, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why are those trials there? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We want to be pure. And the way that we are made to be pure is through testing, through fire, through refinement. And so we want that. We want to be refined and we rejoice so greatly in the gospel that our faith is not diminished, Peter says, in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that testing, in the midst of that refining. If you're in 1 Peter, you can just flip back two pages to James chapter 1. How do we respond to such refinement? James tells us in James 1, starting with verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it joy. Count it joy. So we need to be refined, and Jesus comes as a refining fire. If you notice in the Malachi passage, it doesn't just say he comes as a refining fire. He comes like fuller soap. Now, fuller is a launderer. And so he comes like a launderer's soap, a fuller's soap. In Malachi's day, a launderer would clean clothes by soaking them in water. And they had put lye in this water. It would dissolve in the water and then they would take the clothes out and beat them and scrub them and finally rinse them once all of the impurities were out of the cloth. And if you read that and think, ooh, that sounds better. I'll take that. I want the, I want the washing. I want the, the launderer's soap, which soap should be lye, by the way. I want the launderer's soap rather than the refining fire. Just remember, lye burns as hot as fire. I mean, it is It burns. And there is this like little process of them scrubbing and beating too, okay? So it's no different. The point is the same. He is coming to purify. And that purity comes through difficulty and joy in the gospel. You can't separate the two. That's what Peter's telling us. That's why James can say, count it all all joy. We rejoice in the gospel, Peter says, even though at times we suffer various trials because we know that suffering through those trials is God's purposeful plan with his son, using his son to refine us and make us pure so that we can see God. So we must, we need to be 
refined. The purpose of all of this, as he goes through this, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears for, he's like refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. The purpose is clearly purity. God desires, as he has proclaimed through this entire book, pure offerings from holy people. And they are only holy by his work in their lives. And this, the whole point of this part of it, the fire that is a refining fire is a hope-filled fire. The purpose of the fire is purity so that God is receiving glory from pure worship. And that's His purpose and His plan. And in fact, Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 3, consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons my son my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the lord nor be weary when reproved by him for the di- lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Israelites are asking God, where are you? It seems to us that those who are evil are being blessed. And those who are righteous, us are not being. Where are you? And the Lord says, those who I love, I discipline. And it may feel difficult. It may be, it may seem painful at the time, but if you are disciplined, know this, you are a child, you're a son, you're a daughter of God. So love the discipline, just like a good son loves the discipline of a loving father. I'm disciplining you because I love you. But he says in Hebrews, those who he's not disciplining, and this is a word to the Israelites, could be a word to the Israelites. Those who are not disciplining are the ones who should be worried, concerned. His purpose is purity, that he would be worshipped, just like he has said over and over and over here in Malachi. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. 
From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. That is his goal and that's what he's going to do through the refining of Christ. And then he goes on in verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in, worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is all referring to final judgment. Christ is going to come again as judge. The picture of destruction and eternal judgment for all others. What Hebrews is referring to when it says, if you're not disciplined, worry. If you are disciplined, know you have a loving Father who's disciplining you and purifying you and making you ready for heaven. It's referring to all of those who are not purified in the refining Fire. So either you get the fire of refining or the eternal fire of judgment is what God says. He mentions in here those who will be judged. Who, who is it that will be judged in here? He refers to a list here, the sorcerers, the adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow, the fatherless. Understanding, right? Those who are being oppressed are the widow and the fatherless. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner and those who do not fear me. It's referring to unrepentant sinners, unrepentant sorcerers, unrepentant adulterers, unrepentant liars, unrepentant oppressors. That's why we need the refining work of Christ. When we repent, and He begins this refining work in us, because we don't, we don't, we don't completely end our struggle with sin. We continue to fight sin for the rest of our life. But if we have repented, if we're in Christ, and He does that refining work in us, if not, He says, you will be judged. in case you see your name on that list, but have come to Christ and you see on your list, this was me, this was me, this was me. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Remembering as we went through the book of Ephesians, this was many of us. And our response now is to remember what we were only to rejoice in the grace of God that has been poured out on us. Because he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
for those of us who were that, and that is everyone who is now in Christ, you were formerly dead in your trespasses and sin. You formerly were these things. But thanks be to God, His grace is enough. But if you've not experienced His grace, He says you will be judged. He's referring to the final judgment. There's two New Testament passages I want to look at briefly. Just as follow-up to what he says here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Starting with verse 5. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 5. This is evidence... The righteous judgment, the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So if you're ever feeling like the Israelites, wondering, why does it seem like, why does it seem like, Those who are wicked are doing very well. And those who are in Christ seem to be struggling. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. It is coming as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. To this end we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. And may fulfill every resolve for good. And every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified. In you and you in him. According to the grace of our God. And the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a time when justice will fully take place. God will judge. God will judge the wicked. And Paul says, my prayer is for you that our God would may, may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. That coming of judgment should not be to us this overwhelming, happy, delightful, we're so glad that they're being punished. We should be praying for each other and for ourselves this very thing that we would, as Malachi says, stand in fear of God. And as Paul says here, that we would be made worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Because his coming in judgment is ahead of us. And it will be a fire of judgment. Revelation 21 Verses 7 and 8, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Those are those who have been through the refining fire. They're his. He's their father and that's why he disciplined them to make them more like his son Christ. But 
Verse 8, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There's two fires in Christ's coming. Those who have not turned toward Christ for His refining work, those who have not repented and come to Him will suffer, Revelation 21 tells us, the second death, which is an eternal fire. So ultimately, who does it say that is for? Those who do not fear me, God says. He says in chapter 1, verse 14 again, I will be feared among the nations, and if I am not, those who do not fear me will be judged forever. Ultimately, this is the answer to verse 17. Where is the God of justice? He is coming. Where is the God of justice? He's coming. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, he is coming. And if you do not fear me, it will not be delightful for you. So if you're one of these people, if you're one of these people who have not repented, if you are one of these people like the Israelites who do not fear God and and rather are cynical towards God, skeptical of God, what is the call here in Malachi? Repent, repent. Seek the fire of refinement, not the fire of judgment. Find grace and mercy. Who can stand when he comes? Those who receive mercy from God. And let me just say that concerning his refining work, though it is real and painful at times, it's also walked with him. And that's why Peter can say things like he says, it, we rejoice in this. Later on in the book of, of 1 Peter in chapter 4, verse 13, rejoice insofar as you suffer for Christ's sake, so that you can also rejoice at his appearing. That seems paradoxical, like how can I rejoice in the midst of fire? You say both are fire and both are. Yet when we're with Christ in Christ, that refining work is a joyful work because more and more as the dross, as the impurities are scraped away, we're becoming more and more and more into the image of Christ. And the more we become in the image of Christ, the more we desire that work in us. As I look back over my life and as I look forward to the life ahead, I want every year to be able to look back and see I hate sin more now than I hated sin a year ago. I want that refining work in me. And the more that that work happens in my life, the more I embrace that work. Just get it out of me, Lord. I want to be like Christ. I want to worship you. I want to bring pure offerings to you because you're worthy of that. But if you've not repented, I I beg you, this is absolute truth from Scripture. Christ, he says, is coming. And now we look back on that. He has come. 
And in his coming, he gave his life so that those of us who have not feared him in the past can see him, glorify him, come to him, repent of our sins, be embraced by him, receive mercy from him, and be forever changed by him. We're looking back on that. We are only looking forward to his second coming of judgment. If you don't fear him, if you don't fear him, repent. If you have repented, if you are in Christ, you are free. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans 8.1. What we just read earlier in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. That's what you were. That's who you were. But now we have Christ. You're free from those things. So embrace Him and embrace the refining work that He is working in and through your life, through difficulty and suffering. Embrace that. Just want to wrap up and look at verse 6 for a moment. For, He says, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. And I'm, I'm either going to refine and make pure or I'm going to judge. And then verse 6 he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The Lord does not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's never changed and He will never change. We refer to that as the immutability of God. In fact, in in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. He has said, he, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken? And will he not fulfill it? He does not change. He is not like us. And here is the joy and the truth in the midst of that truth. We can hope in the refining work of God because he never changes. He never changes. And that's his point here. I, the Lord, do not change. This is the clearest verse in all of Scripture to teach us the immutability of God. He doesn't change. He's trustworthy. If he promises, he keeps his promises. He doesn't change. What he has said will take place will take place. He said, Christ is coming. Before Christ comes, I'm going to send my messenger, John the Baptist. Both of those things took place. He promised that his son would come and be treated by him. In Isaiah, he says this, being treated by him as a sacrifice for us. He crushed him. It was for the joy, for joy that he crushed his son. He promised and he did that. And he has promised that he is coming again to judge Why do we end with verse 6? Because this is the hope of verses 1 through 5. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. 
The purpose of this whole verse in the midst of all of what has just happened is worship. If I changed, you would be consumed. That's what he's saying. If I changed, you'd be gone. It's true for us. If God changed, if he wasn't faithful from from eternity past to eternity future, if he wasn't faithful with his promises, we would be consumed. We would be done. If he was like us in any way and changed his mind in any way, we could not stand before him. We would be consumed. But he says, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. 2 Peter 3.9 says, He is patient with us. He is patient with us. Not willing that any should perish, but all would come to eternal life. And so what I think that we should do in response to the terrifying thought of God coming as a fire to judge is to worship Him. Because if He changed we would be part of that fire of judgment. If we're in Christ, we are free. We don't need to fear the fire of judgment because God is unchanging. And so we can rejoice in God's unchanging truths in the midst of the refining work. He is unchanging. So I want to pray and then we're going to sing about this very thing and just worship the Lord that He does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. I want to ask again, if you don't know Him, if you don't fear Him, that today would be the day of rejoicing for you as well. That you would see Christ as the only way to get to the Father. That you would see and know that He gave His life. He laid down His life. He came, as this passage says, once. He came once already. And in that coming, He was a perfect, righteous Lamb and laid His life down for the sins of those who would come to Him. He was punished for all of the sins of those who would believe in Him. He was crushed by His Father so that we could be forgiven, so that God's wrath, that that eternal fire, that judgment that's referred to in Malachi 3.5, that judgment was put on Christ instead of us. If you have not feared Him or known Him, then today what Scripture teaches is believe, believe and repent. Turn from your sins, turn from your sins and embrace Christ.